0: Good evening and thank you to David for leading us in our worship so far this evening. We're going to be looking this evening at Acts chapter 8. Uh, That's page 1101 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 8. Let's pray. Father we thank you that we have your word in our own language that we can read and that we can understand. But Father we know that it is you by the work of your spirit that applies it to us and and helps us to know what you are saying to us. And we pray that you would come now. And help us to understand. What you would have to say to us. From your word this evening. In Jesus name. Amen. I wonder do you ever find it difficult. To keep focused. Perhaps if you are faced with a, a. difficult task to undertake. you find it easier to focus in. On one aspect of the task. And maybe find it more difficult. To keep an eye on the bigger picture. It's not always easy to keep perspective. Perhaps as we read together the first half of Acts chapter 8 earlier in our service there were certain things happening that maybe sounded strange, not quite sure what Luke was saying. I know I thought that but as we come to look at them this evening let's avoid the danger of losing perspective. Let's keep an eye on the bigger picture. Of what's happening and what God is doing in His church throughout this unfolding history in the Book of Acts? To help us do that, I'm going to use a question—a question that I borrowed from a book, a, a title of a book uh, that, that I borrowed to help us do this. And that question is: What's so amazing about grace? And want us to think what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25 about grace. Grace being a parallel word for for the gospel, for salvation, for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, which is a dominant theme throughout this book as the church grows and the message spreads. So as we think of the gospel spreading to Samaria, to this new geographical area, let's ask ourselves the question, what's so amazing about the grace of our God? first thing that strikes me about this grace that we see in acts chapter 8 is that it turns our situations around and leaves things not just as they seem from a human perspective rather helpfully i think we, we've heard in previous weeks of, of how luke shows us the devil's threefold attack how luke has shown us that the physical violence is an attack of the devil be that with the persecution of stephen or corruption or corruption as with Ananias and Sapphira. Or distraction, as Green pointed out, between the Hellenistic and the Grecian Jews as cultural tension emerged even within the Jewish family or the wider Jewish family. But here in Acts chapter 8, we read the aftermath of a first prong of attack of physical violence and the, the stoning of Stephen. If you didn't know the history of the church and didn't know that the church is still here, in 2008 and we're just reading acts chapter 8 the opening verses as an onlooker you could be forgiven for thinking that the end was near that the demise of the church is imminent look at the language that's used words like great persecution scattered buried mourned deeply destroyed dragged put in prison you could be forgiven for thinking that the finish line was near for this community for this church it's a difficult and a dangerous situation and it just looks like its opponents might be getting the upper hand and no doubt the human authorities might just have thought that themselves but when we're dealing with the grace of god things aren't as they seem from a human perspective a situation that opens so negatively actually soon emerges in this passage to be a very significant step forward in the mission and ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. God brings a blessing in what looks like a catastrophe. Things aren't as they seem. These believers are dispelled from their homes. But Luke tells us that they preached the word wherever they went in verse 4. So in the aftermath of the stoning of Stephen, the church is actually strengthened because it propels the Christians out into a wider area, to areas yet untouched with the gospel. And then as they go, they tell others of their life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Before we dismiss the implications of this for our own day, that that was then and, and this is now, we've already thought in our service this evening about how brothers and sisters in Christ still suffer the threat of physical persecution, of displacement from their homes, of families divided. A timely reminder that this sovereign God can transform situations like this in our very own day, as he did in the first century. Take the land of China where opposition is still so strong. In 1949, 637 missionaries were expelled from that land it looked like disaster it looked like the end of the china inland mission it looked like communism had got its grip on the land and and that was it for the gospel and yet today whilst we don't know exactly how many people are missionaries in that land it is thought that the figure is somewhere around 30 to 40 times the number that were expelled god can still transform situations that look like a catastrophe in our day he's still sovereign and yet in our western world where we don't probably very often suffer the physical threat of persecution for our faith but sometimes subtly and indeed not so subtly as our society becomes increasingly more intolerant towards christianity and christian values we too need to seek assurance and reassurance from this passage that god is still a god of grace and nothing but nothing can thwart his purposes. Grace. It transforms our situations and things aren't as they seem from our human perspective. But also I see in this passage that, that Luke tells us that grace is no respecter of persons. It's not about who we are. Luke has a lot to say in his two books about gender. He's many references to women in his gospel that are unique to his gospel amongst the other gospel accounts he draws them out for particular attention and also in Acts he he continues this stress on on the role of women and on how this community of followers of Jesus Christ is made up of both men and women in verse 3 of our passage it's both men and women who are imprisoned for the sake of the gospel and in verse 12 it's both men and women who are baptized. This new community, countercultural. It's interesting he draws attention to this in the midst of a society, especially within Judaism, that would have looked down on this. But this grace, this amazing grace that we're looking at this evening, is no respecter of gender. The grace is poured out to bring sinners, whether male or female, to repentance and faith. In Jesus Christ. But also, strikingly for our passage, it's no respecter of persons on a basis of ethnicity. Whether we, we, we realize it or not in our first reading, there is a, a racial barrier being crossed here. A fortnight ago we thought of the, the barrier between uh, the Hebraic and the Grecian Jews, but there's an even bigger barrier being crossed here this evening because the gospel spreads to the Samaritans. In the New Testament times, the Samaritans were a substantial group of people in the religious scene. Their worship focused on a town of Shechem. and Religiously, they would have used a version of the, uh, the Law of Moses that only differed in one or two crucial points to that which the Jews would have used. Differences in places of worship and differences uh, in the Law, but yet there was a lot of hatred between the two groups. Some Jews would even have regarded the Samaritans As fools and idolaters. Remember way back in Acts chapter 1. When we started this series. There we read that the risen Christ told his disciples. That they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. In all Judea. In Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1 verse 8. I like to picture Acts 1 verse 8. In my mind as ripples in a pond. You know if you throw a stone into the water. And the the circles radiate out from where the stone hits the water if you take that image and and think that here we're reaching the next ripple in the pond salvation isn't just limited to the Jewish people salvation is spreading to the Samaritans en route to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth this is momentous and this is momentous for for you and me unless we're of Jewish descent this is the gospel en route to, to reach people like us We can't miss the significance. As we discover that this grace of God is no respecter of persons, whether on the basis of gender or of ethnicity, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, what practical implications do you think that has for the mission of Christ's church today? I wonder, do we ever consciously or subconsciously Limit the grace of God. Maybe to people who we think will respond. Maybe to people of a particular background. Maybe to people who we think are socially acceptable. Do we ever dare to limit the grace of God? We dare not because we're called. Not to set up our own checklist of who we think will respond. But to faithfully declare this good news to all. If those who had been scattered in verse one had adopted the mindset of limiting the grace of God and only preaching the word to to their own people, to those people that they knew, well in all probability then the events that we read about in, in chapter eight wouldn't have happened. The exciting thing that, that they are they are rising to the challenge, responding to the situation that God has placed them in. To share his word wherever he has called them to be. We need not only grasp the extravagant nature of this grace in the first century. But we need to grasp it afresh this evening for our own lives. What's so amazing about grace? It turns our situations around. Even catastrophe can be turned around. It's no respecter of persons. Thirdly, it's a work of the Holy Spirit this is a hard one i opened one commentary uh, in my preparation for this and it. it said I'd mentioned baptism in the holy spirit and a group of assorted evangelicals and you're likely to have a fight on your hands but well, i don't want to fight this evening we'll try and avoid that but let's hope that that as we look again at these verses we we will see something more about the amazing nature of this grace let's remind ourselves of what luke said acts chapter 8 verses 15 to 17 When they arrived they prayed for them that they might might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. That statement that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Has been described as the most extraordinary statement in the whole of the New Testament. Why? Why? Because if these people were believers as Luke describes them and we believe that the Holy Spirit draws people to faith how could they not have the Holy Spirit? How could the Holy Spirit not have been at work in their lives? What is Luke saying about the work of the Spirit? Or what's he not saying? Well, before I say anything more I want to prefix our thoughts on this verse by noting that As we come to deal with this issue we are dealing with the work of the holy spirit and as we speak of the work of our triune god father son and holy spirit we realize that as sinners as we are we we will never fully understand his ways and how he works and secondly as we deal with this difficult part of this passage we must be wary as i suggested at the beginning we need to keep the whole perspective We can't just take this verse out and deal with it in our minds. John Stott speaks of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. I think of it a bit like stabilizers on a bicycle. But let's try then and note the context. We've seen how how Luke, throughout this book of Acts, and even last Advent at the early chapters of of Luke's Gospel, we've seen how Luke has a particular focus on the work of the Spirit. He draws attention to how the Spirit is at work In Acts 8, it's his usual attention to detail that he makes this reference that these people haven't received the Spirit. But deliberately this evening I asked us the question, what's so amazing about grace? The grace that sinners can be made right in the sight of a holy God. For that is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and draws people to faith in Christ. As he convinces us of our sin and enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renews our wills. And that is born testimony throughout scripture. I want to take a few moments just to set that in context. Because it's important uh, to read this verse in that light. We all know the story in John's gospel where Jesus speaks of Nicodemus of this very thing. Of being born both of water and the spirit. Look in Acts, Peter talks about it in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. That if his hearers repent, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later on in Acts chapter 16, he he draws attention to the fact that Lydia believes because it's the Lord who opens her heart to respond to the message. Paul also tells us about the rebirth and renewal of the Spirit in Titus and in Romans 8, he speaks of the adoption of the Spirit. So let's be clear as, as we pursue Uh, and try to seek an understanding of this verse this evening that Luke and the other New Testament writers testify to the work of the Holy Spirit that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to take what Jesus has done by his life, death and resurrection and apply it savingly to men and women boys and girls but then the story in Acts 8 the first missionary outreach of the church beyond the Jewish people to a new cultural group. We know that these chapters come in a period of transition. For last week Christoph flagged up that in the coming chapters Luke introduces us to four people. Who, who will tell the story of how the church is transformed from a local community to a worldwide phenomenon. Last week it was Stephen. Today we meet Philip. Luke follows Philip on his journey to Samaria. To announce the good news of the kingdom of God he demonstrates it through signs and wonders the, the, the typical evangelistic message and people believe but then why does Luke say they haven't received the spirit there's any diversity of opinion on this verse but my baseline as I thought about this was the fact that Luke draws attention to it would suggest that it's not normative it's not usual there's something different happening here This experience is different and we've supported that from looking elsewhere in the New Testament through Luke and through the other New Testament writers. But what's going on and why does it matter that that, that we get our heads around it? On the one hand, some will argue that the first stage of the Samaritans' experience in verse 12 wasn't genuine conversion, but rather it was some sort of intellectual assent. I don't think that's what Luke means. He, He says that they believed. Others argue that the laying on of the hands of the apostles was not that they received the initial gift of the Spirit, but rather that they received some sort of charismatic uh, gift uh, and manifestation of the Spirit. And that makes sense, uh, as we thought of how the Spirit is at work in ordinary lives as people come to faith. But John Stott gives a lengthy discussion on it, which I, I, I don't want to go into, but he highlights that the most natural the the most realistic uh, explanation for what's going on is that because we're outside Jerusalem, because we're in Samaria, and the significance of this, the ripples in the pond are spreading out, bearing in mind the significance of this issue, and bearing in mind, as we've already seen in this book, the potential for distraction. And the distraction here could have been that the church spent the next 20, 30, 40 years debating splitting itself, wondering were the Samaritans really Christians? Had they really believed? Had God really worked in their lives? That suggests that it is altogether possible that God in his providence temporarily deliberately withheld the spirit so that the apostles themselves from Jerusalem could witness it, could endorse it and could endorse Philip's bold move to step outside the comfort zone, to step outside the, n- the known and evangelize to the Samaritans. J.I. Packer says it's no more than a guess, but it seems rational and reverent. You see, essentially, the potential for distraction, the seeds of doubt, could have been devastating. This God of grace who works as he will by his spirit knew what is best for his church. And we see even in in the few verses we've read this evening how the distraction is avoided because the passage ended in verse 25. That Peter and John have accepted the Samaritans' conversion and that they themselves then go and preach the gospel in many Samaritan villages. It's a difficult verse. We don't have time to deal with it fully by any means. But we have looked at it in the context of Scripture, in the context of this book, and seen how God works by his Spirit in our salvation. But what's so amazing about grace? It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And rather than a deep and theological discussion on verses 16 and 17 that I couldn't give you anyway, perhaps we would be better to humble ourselves and reaffirm this evening our need of God and of his spirit to be at work in our lives in our congregation in our community our utter dependence on him and on this work of his spirit for while some will sow others will water but it's only by God through the work of his spirit in his own time who makes things grow grace A work of God's Spirit. But notice also as the passage moves on and we meet Simon that this grace cannot be bought with gold or silver. Simon offers money for the hope of being able to bestow the gift of the Spirit that he has seen uh, the apostles bestow. That probably seems so strange to us, the thought of being able to, 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 to do that. But religious professionals in the Roman Empire would have paid extravagant sums of money to be able to serve in a pagan temple. So no doubt Simon thought that if he could get what Peter and John had then there was a few quid to be made into the bargain and that was all to the good. And that's why Peter's response is so harsh in verse 20. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. It's a striking reminder that that we can't buy our acceptance in God's sight with money, with good works, with anything. It's a work of his spirit as he comes and convicts us of our sin. But the other big question with Simon that we can only deal with uh, in closing. is how he, He raises the question in our minds, how effective is this grace? Because we've already struggled with the record that they hadn't received the gift of the spirit. But now we struggle with the fact that Simon has, has, has made a profession of faith. And now as the passage draws to a close, he seems to have gone way off track. Verse 13, Simon believed and was baptised. He, he continued and followed Philip and was amazed by the visual demonstration of these signs and wonders. And yet in verse 19 and following, Peter tells him that he has no portion in this matter. He has no place. In the kingdom of God, and he calls him to repent and ask God for forgiveness. So was Simon a true believer, or what had happened? It's apparent that Simon had already been making a mark on the city before Philip arrived. People were attracted by his tricks; they were impressed, and he wanted to to improve his success. He realised that what he'd seen in Philip was true. Whereas all his tricks, well they just being uh, pretend. And we read about how Simon professed uh, if he had believed and was baptised. And the Apostles accepted that as a credible profession of faith. But then we see how Simon tries to control and manipulate the sovereign grace of God. But God can't be manipulated. And from the fact that when Simon is told to pray and repent... And he can't even bring himself to do that. He doesn't want to deal with the responsibility for his sin. He, shifts it, he tries to shift it back to Peter for him to deal with it. We realise that Simon hasn't really grasped the grace of God. Because when it comes to repenting of our sin, no one else can do it for us. There's no shifting the responsibility. And whilst acknowledging that it's only ever God who knows the hearts of men and women. And on that great day it will be God who will judge and not us. I do think we can say from this passage that Simon seems to have been carried along by the tide of events but the nature of his belief, of his profession remains uncertain. It certainly appears superficial unsatisfactory and Peter declares that in his response. Simon thought that he could acquire this gift. He thought he could administer it to Whoever he met without any mention of repentance and faith, it shows that he hasn't grasped God's grace. Peter tells him as much in verse 21 Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Simon fails to demonstrate that right knowledge of sin that lies at the heart of all saving Christianity. He's impressed by the outward, but he hasn't got the reality. Of realizing what this grace is and the transformation that, that his life needs. The transformation is clearly missing in his life. The implications of the incident are complex, but for us, the bottom line is that Simon is a, a timely reminder that God knows our hearts and, and wants us to come to him, respond to his grace, and live under the, the shadow, under the wing. Of His grace. We've asked ourselves this evening what's so amazing about grace. Luke gives us many answers in these few verses. We've seen how grace turns our situations upside down. It leaves things looking totally different than they look from a human perspective. This grace is no respecter of persons, be it of gender or ethnicity. And it's totally, totally a work of the Holy Spirit which cannot be bought. Or manipulated, and when which yielded to transforms the lives of ordinary people. As we leave this passage this evening, let's be challenged to pray that God will demonstrate this grace in our lives, in our church family, and in our community. Because what's so amazing about grace is that it just keeps spreading, be it through the Samaritan villages of the first century. Or through the streets of Belfast in the 21st. It keeps on going. And we need to keep focused on that. Let's pray together. Our Father we bow humbly before you. The God of extravagant. Magnificent grace. Father we marvel at your love. At how you would reach out to us. But we thank you that in your love and in your grace. You accept us when we come to you and repent of our sin. Thank you that we can know your transforming power in our lives through the blood of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.